Blog Talk Radio. And I got the HD blues, and my life feels kind of rough. Hope for HD Live. Hope for HD Live is brought to you by Hope for HD International and is made possible by an education grant from Teva Pharmaceuticals and the Griffin Foundation. I am your host, Katie Jackson, and today our guest is Maurice Zauderer, PhD. Dr. Zauderer has served as Vasinex President and Chief Executive Officer and a member of the Board of Directors since the company's inception in April 2001. Prior to founding Vasinex, Dr. Zauder was an associate professor at the University of Rochester and has also held senior faculty positions at, um, at Columbia University. During his academic career, Dr. Zauder held the position of visiting scientist at the Laboratory of Cell Biology, the Ontario Cancer Institute, and the National Cancer, in- Cancer Institute. Dr. Zauder received a BS in physics from Yeshiva University, and a PhD in cell biology from Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Thank you so much for coming on the show with us today. And um, let's start by just talking a little bit about Vasinex. Certainly, Katie. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Uh, So Vasinex is a biotechnology company based in Rochester, New York. Uh, We have 45 employees, and many of them are... uh, scientists and engaged in uh, discovery research. And we have, uh, we're an antibody company. We develop a class of drugs called antibodies, which are large molecules that uh, remain in the body for a long period of time. So they don't have to be administered as frequently as small molecule drugs. And uh, we're very focused on Huntington's disease and on certain types of cancer, non-small cell lung cancer, in the uh, clinic. Yeah, it, it's so funny. I think all of us are really learning about antibodies now with the virus or COVID-19 because everyone's talking about do the antibodies. So before, I think a lot of people didn't hear that word as much, right? Now it's talked about quite often. Um, right. So... Yeah, uh, so Vastinex is working on an experimental therapy called, and I'm probably going to say this wrong, but of course, um, Maurice will help me pronounce this. It's Pepinimab. 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 And can you tell us exactly what that is? Right. So uh, Pepinimab is an antibody that we, we selected that's specific for a molecule that we discovered plays an important role in triggering inflammation in the brain. So the target molecule mm-hmm. is called semaphore D, and papinumab blocks its activity, so it prevents semaphore D from triggering uh, uh, inflammation in the brain. 
as you know, uh, inflammation in the brain is a chronic condition that over a period of years is believed to play an important role in progression of Huntington's disease as well as other neurodegenerative diseases. And the ability to block that and interfere with that process is something that we hope will either delay or prevent the onset of disease. Very cool. Um, and so, tell, can you can you get into exactly? I know this is kind of hard, but on how to, to say to to us because we're not scientists, but kind of how that would work. Right. So um, we we appreciate that Huntington's is caused by a mutation in a single gene, the Huntington gene, and this mutation leads to misfolding of the protein and the formation of aggregates in the brain. And this is a stressor in the brain. Um, And what we discovered is that when neurons in the brain are under stress, when they're damaged or something goes wrong, they upregulate this distress signal called semaphore D. It's expressed on the surface of the cell. And this was very striking to us because normally that's not expressed on cells in the brain, on the neurons, the wiring of the brain. But in Huntington's disease and in other neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease, we find very high levels. And so we asked, well, who recognizes semaphore D? If it's a distress signal, who responds to it? And perhaps your, your listeners know that broadly speaking, there are two kinds of cells in the brain. There are, of course, the neurons, which are the wiring of the brain that allows it to act like a supercomputer. But then in addition, there are actually an even larger number of cells that support the function and the health of the neurons. They're called glial cells. And we focus on a particularly important glial cell called an astrocyte. And what we discovered was astrocytes express very high levels of the receptors for semaphore D. These are the cells that are able to recognize semaphore D. And astrocytes are in a very intimate relationship with neurons. They are very close in proximity to each other. They sit right next to each other in the brain, all over the brain. Uh, neurons and astrocytes are intermingled. And so when the neurons upregulate, when they raise that flag, the semaphore D flag, the astrocytes are there, ready to recognize it because they have a receptor. We then found that what happens is the astrocyte undergo a very dramatic change. When, when that semaphore D molecule binds to their receptors, they change their shape and they change their, actually their function. So normally, astrocytes have many, many arms. This is a cell that acts by interacting directly with other cells. It reaches out and it touches them and it sends signals to them through that contact. And in order to be able to reach out in many different directions and have many different contacts, these cells have many arms. But what happens when they get this signal is that the arms contract. The cell structures that support those arms uh, collapse And the cells switch over. They abandon their normal functions, and they switch over to secreting inflammatory molecules. And these inflammatory molecules recruit other inflammatory in the cells of the brain, and they create this inflammatory condition. Now, inflammation in the brain 
if it happens only for a short period of time at a single site of injury, can actually be helpful. In Huntington's disease and other such diseases like Alzheimer's, progressive MS, it's a chronic condition, and it, it continues to cause damage in many different parts of the brain over a long period of time. And that's what eventually gives rise to Huntington's disease. So the ability to interfere and to prevent this signal from continuing indefinitely and allowing the inflammation to go on and continue to damage the brain is an important intervention that we hope will, as as I said, either prevent or delay disease onset and disease progression, depending on the stage of disease. Incredible. So, what? How does it? How does it differ from other like potential therapies and treatments that are out there right now? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. So, as you know, as we were discussing, and as, as you and, and your listeners know very well, Huntington's disease is caused by a dominant mutation in a single gene. Um, and as we were discussing, that mutation gives rise to a misfolded protein that. Uh, causes the formation of these aggregates, right? And so a reasonable strategy is to say, well, maybe if we can interfere with the expression of this gene, of this mutated gene, reduce the amount of mutant Huntington's protein, that will be beneficial to patients. Uh, And that's, that's a very reasonable strategy to undertake. And in recent years, there have been tools that have become available for trying to do that, for trying to reduce the expression of the gene, uh, or either by blocking the, the RNA that's made from the gene or by uh, suppressing the gene in, in other ways, genetic strategies. And there's a lot of interest in this, and there are multiple different strategies that are currently being developed specifically in Huntington's disease. However, there's a limitation to these strategies. Uh, First of all, although they lower the mutant Huntington protein, they only do this partially. And no one knows yet really how much you have to reduce the mutant Huntington in order to avoid the damage that that occurs in the disease. Moreover, intervening in the brain is difficult because the brain is very large. The human brain is very large. And being able to reach all the different parts of the brain is difficult. So some of these interventions really mostly are effective in one part of the brain but not another, uh, and so it's really not yet clear how effective that's going to be. So we all we all hope that this is going to have a beneficial uh, effect in patients, but it's possible that ultimately it's going to be as part of a combination therapy that is going to require more than one intervention in order to do this on a scale and in enough regions of the brain to really make a difference. And so we're all waiting to find out exactly how this how this works and what else might be required. Right. Now, what distinguishes the approach that Vaxinus has taken is we don't attack the mutation itself. We don't know, actually, whether mutant Huntington protein by itself is a problem. It's possible that the only reason mutant Huntington protein is a problem is because of what it triggers downstream. What does it cause to happen, right? So we're very focused on how mutant protein, mutant Huntington's, leads to damage. What is the pathway? What is the pathology? What does it do? What's bad about having mutant Huntington in the brain? Uh, 
And based on some of the science we've done and some of the discoveries we've made, we believe that mutant Huntington protein is a very important signal. It stresses the neurons, and it triggers that pathway I was describing. It triggers upregulation of semaphore D. All of a sudden, the neurons are expressing high levels of semaphore D on their membranes, and that activates astrocytes and makes them to, uh, transform into an uh, inflammatory state. And then that has a whole sequence of events that cause damage in the brain. And so we're trying to block the downstream effects of mutant Huntington rather than trying to prevent expression of mutant Huntington. We're attacking the pathogenic mechanism, not just the uh, trigger of that pathway. And so that's a different approach. Uh, we are very hopeful that we're going to see beneficial effects from this. Um, and, you know, it's possible that in the future our approach will complement other approaches in order to bring the greatest benefit to patients. Yes, yeah. So it's been, so there has been a clinical trial that Bastinex has been, that's been going on. I think one of the questions that uh, the community often has, because they do talk about these potential future therapies, um, is how that, how, what is, how do they get the therapy? Um, is it through the spine? Is it through brain surgery? These kind of like things that scare people. People talk about it often in our community that some of these interventions are scary to them because of the way that they have to receive the therapy. So how is Vasinex doing that? Right. So one of the advantages we have because we're uh, working with an antibody is we can use the methods of delivering antibody that are well established, that have been applied safely for many other antibody drugs, and that's an intravenous infusion. So we do not inject anything into the spinal cord. We certainly don't uh, inject into the brain. Um, in our study, uh, subjects who are participating come into the clinic. Uh, they get, uh, they go to the infusion center. They sit in a comfortable chair for 30 to 60 minutes. They're attached to a device that slowly releases our antibody into their bloodstream, and then it's disconnected and they go home. So it's a relatively uh, m modest intervention that uh, that physicians and, and clinical staff have a lot of experience with, and that's relatively benign. There are rarely complications of administering the drug. Uh, sometimes there's an infusion reaction but there are well-developed methods for dealing with that and getting over it. So it's, it's a different uh, way of administering the drug that, as I say, is uh, well understood and not, uh, it's not a major intervention. Yeah. And so the current study that's going on, is it a, what phase is that study? I, I'm sorry, Katie, could you ask that question again? Um, what phase, what the, study, the current study that is, Enrolled, what, oh, yes. what these, the studies, yeah. So this is potentially a pivotal study for FDA registration. Uh, we're doing the study in, uh, at 30 different clinical sites, uh, mostly in the United States, but several sites in Canada as well. There are 265 patients that were enrolled in this study. Um, the study... Uh, required 18 months of treatment, and we're getting very close to the end of that time. 
Um, we expect that the last patient, last visit will occur sometime late in June, uh, at which time uh, we'll have all of the data. It will be uh, examined to make sure that no data points are mislabeled or missing. Uh, processes called locking the database. Uh, that probably will happen uh, over the July and August. And then by the end of August, we should have locked the database and we'll be ready to analyze the data and see what the outcome was. So very, it's, uh, uh, once we have the what's called the top-line data, uh, we'll know whether our drug appears to be effective or not, and we'll be bringing that data to the FDA uh, for review and potential approval. Fantastic. And so it sounds like that you guys are pretty far along, and which is very exciting, especially with the current um, kind of state we are in as a as as a uh, global community with COVID-19. So has that delayed any of the, the um, trial or anything uh, because of Well, we've been very COVID fortunate in the timing of the trial mm -hmm. because um, before the COVID-19 pandemic became evident and became a serious concern, 85% mm -hmm. of the uh, subjects in our study had already completed the full treatment. Uh, we're now working with the remaining patients. Uh, I think we have about 32 patients uh, remaining at the moment. Uh, most of them are at a late stage of the study. Uh, that is, we had 18 monthly treatments, and most of them, almost all of them, have completed 16 of those monthly treatments, and we're bringing them in for the final one or two treatments uh, as is possible at the different clinical sites. So we're, we're pretty much on track to stay uh, with the schedule we originally had and complete the study uh, by the end of June. Fantastic. So um, what have been, I know that, that this is still in trial, but what have the results been so far that you've seen with um, even just before the, the, you know, through the science before the trial with this approach? Right. So as you can imagine, before we launched into this very large 265-patient study, we had done a preliminary study, what is called a phase two study, uh, which was a much smaller study. We had 36 uh, subjects who volunteered for that study, and they were randomized one-to-one -one drug to placebo. So about half the patients received our antibody, and half the patients received a placebo, and they were treated for only six months. It was a short study. Um, all of us appreciate that six months is relatively short in the progression of Huntington's disease, and there wasn't really an expectation that we could see a clinical effect during that short period of time, especially with such a small group of patients. But we needed to do that study to establish safety and also to see what the variance in the, ver in the different uh, outcome measures were so that we could figure out how large should a study be in order to have a chance to see the statistical significant effect and how long should the duration of treatment be? And based on that information, we designed this larger study that required 265 subjects and had involved 18 months of treatment, not just six months. And so that was valuable information. But in addition, there was one thing that we thought we could measure in that study that would give us an important clue as to whether we were on the right path. I mentioned that an important 
part of the pathway that we have been studying and that we're targeting with our antibody is the role of uh, astrocytes that are these inflammatory cells in the brain. Well, one of the things that normal astrocytes do with those arms that I was talking about is they completely surround the blood vessels that feed the brain. And those arms express glucose transporter. Glucose is the main source of energy for the brain. The brain is very energy intensive. It consumes more than 20% of all the energy utilized in the body. And these cells that we're targeting, the astrocytes, play a very important role in taking up glucose from the circulation. But when they undergo their inflammatory change, they abandon that. They downregulate the glucose transporter, and as I mentioned earlier, they partially retract these arms. So they don't do that anymore. And so we thought, and this was exciting to us because it's, it's easy to measure glucose transport in the brain. There are methods for doing that that are well-established and uh, that are very quantitative. And so we thought, if our understanding of how our drug works is correct and the astrocytes play the important role we believe they play, then we should be able to see a change in glucose transport in, uh, in the brain following treatment with our drug. And maybe we can see that even in just six months. And that turned out to be the case. It turned out, as was expected, when you follow the patients in the natural history of Huntington's disease, uh, there's a decline in glucose transport. They take up less over time because something's going on that's interfering with that. And this was actually known uh, before we started our study. What was new and exciting is what we showed was that when we treat with our drug, we stop that. There is not this decline. In fact, there's a, a slight increase. And so uh, that was really to us an important signal that we were on the right path. And it was interesting because the decline in glucose transport in the brain is not unique to Huntington's disease. That happens in many slowly progressive neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease and ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. And all of these diseases, over time, there's a reduction in glucose transport in the brain. The brain becomes less metabolically active. And in fact, this has been very carefully studied in Alzheimer's disease where it's been shown that the decline in glucose transport goes hand in hand with cognitive decline. So in Alzheimer's disease, it was known that this was an important marker of the disease progress. And what we saw was an ability that we had an ability to prevent this. Uh, and that was exciting because this is, to my knowledge, this is the first drug, the first intervention that has shown, been shown to have a very significant impact on, on this biological process that seems to be very important in the brain. And so we were very encouraged by that result. And what we're really trying to show in this uh, large signal study in Huntington's disease is that just as in Alzheimer's, the uh, progression of disease is linked, goes hand in hand with the loss of metabolic activity of glucose transport, that the same thing may be true in Huntington's disease. And that's one of the things we'll be looking for when we get the final data. Wow, that's also, that's, that's also 
and I never even heard about the glucose thing. It made me that my grandmother actually just passed away from Alzheimer's um, a couple weeks ago, and it's another horrible, horrible disease, you know, and you think it, it's like there's all these unknowns, and so I'm just so I'm so happy that brilliant scientists like you guys know about these kind of things to solve these mysteries, right? Um, and so this is exciting, and we will be watching it close. Is there anything that you can think of that we didn't talk about today? Well, actually, you just mentioned Alzheimer's disease. <clears throat> you know, when, <clears throat> when we got these early results in Huntington's disease about glucose transport, that stimulated a lot of excitement in the Alzheimer's community. And uh, wow. because they perceive a potential relevance of our drug in Alzheimer's disease as well. And in fact, we recently received two awards, one from the Alzheimer's Association and another one from the Alzheimer's Drug Discovery Foundation. Together, the two awards are for a little bit under $4 million to allow our company to start a clinical trial in Alzheimer's disease of the same drug that we're using and testing in Huntington's disease. And so we're very excited about that. And that's uh, something we're getting ready to start. And as soon as the COVID-19 situation stabilizes, we hope to start enrolling patients in that Alzheimer's study. This is actually uh, one of the unique things about our drug. Because we're not just targeting uh, the Huntington mutation, that is something that's unique to Huntington's disease, we're targeting a pathway that causes damage in the brain that's common to Huntington's disease and Alzheimer's disease and potentially other neurodegenerative disease so that our drug actually has potential use and benefit in these other diseases as well. And we'll be pursuing that as time goes by and as the resources become available. Yeah, well, congratulations on that and how cool that you are going down one path and unlocked a mystery of another. Um, that's very that's very exciting stuff, and and uh, we always talk about that as as a community, as you know, lay non science community. But like, if people always talk about Parkinson's, Huntington's, Alzheimer's, dementia, you know, all of us do. We have the you know, if one are unlocking different types of therapies, new things, would would all of us be able to kind of together figure out? Even though it's obviously different diseases, different targets, but it's this is where it worked. So this is. This is great news. Um, so congratulations. That's very insightful. That will... yeah. I, I think that's very insightful on your part and, and other people's part because, yes, these diseases have something in common. They all cause similar effects on the brain, the cognitive effects and, uh, in many cases, motor activity. Um, and it's important to think about what is it that these diseases have in common? What's it, what is it that's the same in Huntington's disease and Alzheimer's disease, not just to focus on what's different. Yeah. Yeah. And I never even, I mean, the glucose is very interesting. So, well, I'm excited to see, uh, to watch Vaspinex. I mean, this is very, going to the FDA with top-line data soon, this is very exciting times. So um, our hope is that we see a new potential therapy on the horizon. Um, obviously, we won't know until um, the FDA comes back, but congratulations to everyone at Fastnex and um, our community will be watching and fingers crossed that hopefully we have a new therapy soon. Um, so we will we will stay updated. If you if you uh, if any changes happen or anything exciting, please um, 
we'll, we'll know about it because we watch very close, but we'll definitely have a follow-up radio show um, and keep all of our listeners up to date on all that's going on with Bassinex. So Great. I think we're, that... We're happy to share. Yeah. I think that is um, is it for today. If, I, if you have any final thoughts, Maurice, um, if not, we can close off the show because we got a lot of a lot of great information today. Uh, you know, there's one thought that I always want to share. We are been so moved and impressed by the cooperation and support we get from the Huntington's community, from the participation of people with Huntington's disease and their families and the physicians and clinical staff, of course. Uh, this is a marvelous community, and, and people really are very committed to help find a treatment both for themselves and for others to, to try to put an end to this devastating disease. And we're very appreciative yeah. of the opportunity to be part of that. Yeah, well, yes, and we are thankful to everyone that's looking into HD and, and possible treatments and therapies. It's it's so funny. We, we you know, we're doing these webinars and uh, we've allowed patients to submit questions to us that they want panels of experts to answer. And the questions are always so interesting to me when they come in because a lot of questions, like you were saying, um, how the community is such a tight community, it's because it's generation after generation, right, of suffering. And then we look into our future without future therapies and treatments. We see generations to come to suffer from HD. And um, I was saying, I was just talking yesterday with someone about a question that I came in because they wanted to know more about the history of HD. And I found that interesting. And then I really realized it's, it's really because it's part of our family tree. So like when people talk about their generations, oh, my, my loved one was from Germany or was from Africa, and they talk about all their generation of their family tree. Huntington's families say my, my, my grandmother had Huntington's and then my grandmother's father had Huntington's. And then it's almost part of our family tree story. So it's like a deep, um, and it's terrible. It's a horrific disease, but it's deeply embedded in our family story and our family's history and then our futures to come. So I think that's why we're such a tight-knit community that holds so tight together um, and really pushes hard to, to find future therapies and treatments because this has to end. Um, and so, yeah, no, I'm always so, so thankful. To I hate the disease, but I love the community. It's like no one else out there. So for sure. Well, thank you so much for coming on with us. And um, good luck to everyone um, at Vastinex at the FDA, and we will be having our fingers crossed and hoping to have good outcomes. And um, so until I don't think I have any updates right now, um, we do uh, have our webinars um, to watch our things coming up, our virtual programs coming up. Just go to our website, www.helpforhd.org. Um, we have a lot of virtual uh, programs going on as far as support groups, uh, webinars, and then, of course, the radio show. We have Help for HD TV, which is a great program that you can go. That's more of peer-to-peer -peer support. And then if you need any virtual um, awareness tools like law enforcement, EMT, um, any of those tools, they're all available virtually for free. Um, no cost downloads, no cost video, you know, no cost for you to download the videos and the brochures to your computer. If you want physical um, uh, flash drives with those materials on. If you need help with any EMT, first responders, or law enforcement, please reach out to us and we'll get them to you. But everything's still available on the website for you. I think that's all for now. Everyone stay safe and stay well.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.